the theater I like is a theater of ideas where somebody's trying to like build from one idea to another idea and to reach you with ideas. And ideas are not like a binary thing. Ide- ideas can branch out, you know, like like a, like a tree or a forest. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello there, and a very warm, albeit very windy welcome to this edition of our industry film and TV podcast, FNI Film Network Ireland, Rap Chat. It's available on Headstuff Plus, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your awesome audio content relating to film and TV. It's brought to you by our wonderful sponsors, Wildcard Distribution, Octavid.com, and the always supportive Film Equipment Store. I'm Remy Michelle Clark. Today marks a special episode with one of the most recognisable faces working in film and TV, Ewan Bremner. In between classes that Ewan facilitated for us called Character and Self, which was kindly supported by Screen Skills Ireland, Kildare County Council, Louth County Council, Cavan Arts and Roscommon Arts, we sat down via Zoom to New York with one of the busiest and most highly respected character actors, facilitators and all-round gents working in the biz. This episode is hosted by Paul Butler Lennox and was recorded a couple of weeks ago. In this podcast, Paul gets the inside track on all things Scottish, youth theatre, influences and commonalities in brilliant directors and creative folk. Hello everybody, you're very welcome back to a super special uh, Celtic, you could say, orient, oriented uh, podcast uh, of a uh, special edition of FNI Rap Chat on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Um, as always, we're really, really, really appreciative of our sponsorship from Wildcard Distribution, um, Octavid.com, and Film Equipment Store and Hire here in uh, Ireland. Um, Thank you so much, everybody, for your incredible support uh, for the work that we've been, we've been doing over the last, uh, particularly over the last two years during the pandemic. We've tried to bring you as many um, interesting um, online free courses, classes, um, sources of inspiration and support, um, uh, especially around kind of mindfulness and resiliency and, and, and those type of things. So we hope you got a lot out of them. Um, thank you for... Um, Listening, listening to the podcast and also attending our online events as well. And we really appreciate that too. Um, so today we have a um, wonderful actor's actor. And I know that would probably make him cringe, but, you know, there are some actors who are incredibly versatile and just, you know, for actors with, within the interesting industry, watching the versatility of somebody like our guest today is um, it's a real treat for us to talk to somebody who has inhabited, in the truest sense of the word, in, word in acting, um, like such a different variety of different characters and interpreting, interpreting, you know, different states of consciousness um, in a in 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 that way um, is, is is a real treat for us and our audience today. We're joined by um, Ewan Bremner. Hello. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah. Welcome. Uh, uh, welcome on the podcast. So, first things first, um, how, how are you and how's your pandemic been? It's, my pandemic's been, um, you know, high-class problems, really. I've, I've had no right one. I, I, uh, 
yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just about to open a play on Broadway and uh, we were just finishing our second week of previews and about to open the show a couple of days later and uh, the show got pulled. Oh. It was a Martin McDonough play called Hangmen and uh, it's, you know, that, that kind of th- through everybody, but yeah, that's, uh, ev- you know, everybody was in the same boat. There wasn't, you know, all, all actors were suddenly, you know, trying to orientate in the dark for a little while. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I, I'm the kind of person that likes doing as little as possible when I've got the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, when I'm not at work, I'm quite happy to do... Um, the bare minimum and so you know for a good number of months I was I don't know I, I always seem to uh, get busy with stuff even when I'm not unbeknownst so, to yourself you get dragged get dragged into something creative kind of thing is it yeah yeah and also probably probably I've got some kind of workaholic uh um, voice, you know, on my shoulder, saying you should be doing something, you should be doing this, or you should be doing <laughs> that. And so, put, you know, finding something to put my energy into. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I was I was doing a few little projects over over that time as best I could. You know, mostly either online or just here at home. Or yeah, so I was here in New York and. Uh, yeah. So and then you know, <laughs> it's been it's been it's been like what a good more than eighteen months now, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it uh, never seems to end though. I mean, fell apart. Um, what what do you think these kind of circumstances over the last couple of years have taught you, or what have you learned about yourself as a creative person? Kind of bringing things back to, you know, I suppose minimum or starting starting positions again what have you learned about yourself i don't i don't know if i can really answer that with <laughs> any any kind of wisdom i don't know if I've, i don't know if i've learned uh much about myself but it's 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 been a challenging time with ups and downs that i think for a lot of people that uh you you're forced to confront yourself at certain times on that on that journey and and uh and maybe um forced to like dig dig deeper into your resilience than you would uh ordinarily be aware of or you know ordinarily need to a lot of a lot of actors that I've been talking to over the last couple of years, because our podcast has continued all the way through all this like once a week, and a lot of it seems to be, you know, there's a little bit of a rhetoric of, well, now everybody else in the world knows what it's like to be an actor. <laughs> you know, working from home, you know, uh, meetings, um, knockbacks, all of that type of stuff. And it's just kind of business as usual for actors. You're at home, you're preparing for the next thing and, you know, and then you're gone for long periods, whether it be, you know, from a headspace point of view or or physically away. Um, did you find yourself... Were you actively working and going to set still during that time and like COVID tests and antigen tests up to your nose and all that type of stuff? 
Well, yeah, I did a, I did a couple of productions that uh, were happening over that time. Mm-hmm. I, well, what a couple of productions with physical sets that we were yeah. having to do all the tests and and uh, you know coordinate travel and you know and then yeah coordinate the shooting environments so that they minimised kind of outbreaks on set and. I also did a project that was uh, an online project with actors in lots of countries called mm-hmm. Bluefish uh, that um, was produced online and, and, is, and is still kind of is being edited in London just now. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that started out as a live movie. It was devised uh, by a man called Clark Middleton and he folded in uh, a few of his friends to sort of help direct and um, write and stuff and then uh, we were working with actors in in Mumbai, wow. Tokyo, Bogota, Copenhagen, uh, Johannesburg, uh, you know, all over America, all over South America, Sao Paulo, Rio, um, and so we were working with actors, like 33, 35 actors, and, uh, um, and all, all scattered around the globe. Um, so that was very ambitious, and, and the, you know, in Clark very tragically passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, in, the, in the middle of the shoot, uh, before he'd actually had a chance to direct his scenes, he, he got suddenly very sick and... Um, yeah, he passed away, uh, which is just uh, sorry, you know, absolutely horrible. Um, he was my best mate, and uh, you know, we worked very closely together. And he's the guy that got me into teaching in the first place. He invited me out to New York to come here and uh, put together a class that I could, you know, I'd never taught before. Yeah. Uh, so that was just to experiment with that. He, he, he's uh, been instrumental in a lot of things in my life, um, and since then, and yeah, and and I've inherited his duties on the Bluefish film mm-hmm. um, since he passed, and so that's that's an ongoing project. But that we, yeah, we did have to observe certain protocols with filming because we had we had some minimal crews working with actors in different mm-hmm. in different countries so they, they, that all had to be um was carefully th- was this well. um was this you, you i know you've done some bits was it is a torn page as well were they is that similar torn torn page uh was yeah tor- the torn page group were involved in mm-hmm. the production um as performers and uh, in some ways, producing and uh, a good also group. in some ways dir- dir- directing as well, and and so, yeah, um, yeah, that was something that Clark was very much part of mm-hmm. um, as well. But before, especially before he moved to California, um, he, he was living out there for a couple of years uh, before he passed away. But I'm sorry for your loss, Mike. Um, Thank you. Um, I might take you back a little bit. Take you right back to the start. Um, you, 
you were raised in Portobello, am I right, on the coast, just outside Edinburgh? Yeah, I lived there from when I was about 10 years old. I think we moved to Portobello. So I was kind of, yeah, finishing off my primary school and going into high school there and, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. And then I was, yeah, so that was, that was where I was a teenager. What do you think were your kind of, at that point, if you can recollect, your kind of earliest artistic or creative inspirations or experiences? Was it cinema? Was it, you know, your surroundings? Or was it kind of someone close to you in that respect? I mean, did anyone um, make, bring, bring the creative life to life for you? Or, or were you inspired by outside influences to do what you do? Uh, well, I accidentally wound up being involved in uh, uh, youth theatres that were, you know, part of a community theatre operation that was operating in Edinburgh in the, <laughs> I guess, the l- late 70s, early 80s. Wow. And um, so I was, I was a beneficiary of those community arts programmes that were still funded at that time. Um, yeah, and it was it was accidental because you know the only reason that I wound up there is uh, at the weekend when my parents would have to go to the supermarket to get the weekly shopping. Me and my sister would be tearing lumps out of each other in the supermarket, and so they just they just couldn't handle like the distraction anymore. So they they realised that near that area there was a there was uh, something called theatre workshop, which I did photography mm-hmm. classes and and uh, writing classes and uh, all, you know screen printing and and one of the things that they had was a, a youth uh, creative youth group or whatever it wasn't a youth theatre and through that I started really enjoying like being around the people there getting <laughs> to a youth theatre there and then sort of you know that being around that kind of institution at that time community arts in Scotland. In a socialist country, uh, at that time, people were making stuff uh, very enthusiastically that engaged with the world around. It was, it was a time of real time of devising theatre. Uh, it was a time of socially conscious theatre um, that was responding to uh, current political situations and it was also just a very playful environment and I I just adored being around I was mostly older people that I was around and I just uh, I just older kids and stuff and, and Did it, I just I, adored it as as as, as, as uh, like I was in youth theatre as well here Dublin youth theatre and then National Youth Theatre over here and it kind of saved my life because I'm from a fairly working class area over here it really kept me centred and you know away from certain elements and I found it it was of incredible benefit I really feel as if it was uh, for me personally um, a great indicator of how the world really works and you get to mix with people from different social classes different ethnicities and it opens your eyes to the world of just play and you know the idea in the truest sense of a workshop and and collaborating you know really everyone needs to work together was that a case for you in terms of that kind of sectarianism maybe perhaps and it made everybody the same or similar and you know no sure it was it was it was, it was massively uh educational and um 
Yeah, uh, and and the other thing about just engaging with acting, especially for young people, when they're kind of like trying to understand and grapple with their identity or what their identity is supposed to be, or <laughs> you know, is that is, acting puts you in a situation where you have to think about something from somebody else's point of view. You know, I was I was in another youth theatre, another side of town, uh, when I was 14, and I was playing an 11-year-old girl who was having her first period <laughs> and I had to borrow my mum's clothes. And I was wearing my mum's jumper and my mum's sandals and probably one of her skirts and stuff. It was all massively too big for me. That's range. You know, and, that's, and, that's serious range, by the way. Well, that, that was... That was... Uh, uh, you know, the... <laughs> I was the only boy in a in a in, in this particular youth theater, and yeah. they decided to do top top girls. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, the, the Carol, Carol, Carol Churchill, Churchill play. Yeah, yeah. So um, they had to have find a part for me, and that was like, you know, I remember I had a, a skinhead at the time, and uh, you know, so you have to. Th- it forces you to think about things from points of view that are not your own, you know. Yeah. And and that's something that. It's great, and to collaborate with everybody, you know, as we were saying earlier, like it, when you're on stage or on set, everyone's at the same level. It's not um, mm. there aren't people working at one level and people working at another level. When the camera's on, or when the when the audi- when you're in front of the audience, everybody is switched on. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's working at the same level, and whatever kind of maelstrom of chaos that <laughs> that makes is what it makes. But um, it's kind yeah, of it's kind it's kind of alchemy, isn't it? Like a, like a moment of moments of alchemy where you, you or ascension, I suppose, without sounding too pretentious, where you know everybody is on the same frequency for a short it period. It is of time. chemical, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a chemical accident, you know. This this particular group of people, it's like the or not necessarily accident, but it's an accident, mm-hmm. a chance, you know. This particular makeup this group of people that are working together on something mm-hmm. yeah you cannot you know you just have to lock in with each other and and uh, and make the make the show work make the scene work make your character work or make you know the joke work mm-hmm. make the sound cue work make the you know the props not fall apart make the <laughs> you know make make it make it to the end of the the scene without forgetting all the lines and you know yeah this yeah was it's the what, what, that's okay. Was there ever a con- was there a, a light switch moment, or was it was it even a, a conscious decision to be an actor, or did it just happen because that's what you were doing? Well, there's a couple of things. One one was in the youth theatre I was in. Probably I was about eight or nine years old in the first youth theatre I was in and, and one of the kids, it was just like a sort of weekly Saturday morning thing probably, and one of the kids came along one day and he was wearing this like, we were all like, you know, <laughs> we were all tiny, but he was wearing this like black leather biker jacket Aye. with, you know, the silver zippers and the big collar and and um, and we were all checking out his jacket thinking like, whoa, that's a cool <laughs> jacket. And, and he said, yeah, I got it with money from, yeah, I did a commercial at the weekend and they gave me, you know, and they, and they paid me and I got, or maybe they, I got to keep the jacket or maybe I bought, yeah, I yeah. don't know what it was. And I was like, oh, 
what did you have to do <laughs> in a commercial? And he was like, nothing. And, and they just gave you money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and I was thinking like, whoa. And I, w- and I went home to my mom and I said, mom, guess what? This guy, got this, uh, he, he did a commercial and he gave him money and, uh, you know, he didn't have to do anything. And it's like, how did that, you know, what did, you know, late, you know soon figured out that for that to be in place, you need to have an agent or something who will then... But there was, there was cast directors coming through this... I didn't have an agent, but there was cast directors who would come through this youth theatre yeah. uh, where occasionally when they needed to find a kid for, you know, a, a commercial or a TV show or uh, I don't know what else, like a film or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they, would sometimes, they would sometimes just sit in and... Uh, we never... I don't think we ever were aware that that was happening, but... Mm. They were kind of like I suppose it's sometimes like, fish it's, for kids. You it's, know? It spoils the magic, doesn't it? Again, if like if you're aware, if you're conscious, you're you're being watched in that regard. It uh, kind of spoils the, the the brew, as it were. Yeah. No. I mean, like, really, I I'm uh, I'm like the least successful child actor, and somehow <laughs> I survived being a child actor, and and you know, not many do. So not was, many survive being a child actor. So you've, uh, you've never been anything else. You've never been anything else. Like obviously, no. you've been you've been everything else. You know, in terms of the characters and the research, and you know. No, I've never been anything else. And I, and I remember I met one time with um, Ken Loach. Mm-hmm. He was casting a film, and we had a, a nice chat for I don't know forty-five minutes or an hour, and in his office in London, and and. He asked me about myself and you know how I got into acting, and mm-hmm. at the end of it, he says, "Like well, it's really nice talking to you, but I, I, I have to say, I, I couldn't work with you because uh, you know I only work with people that have, you know, that have had lives outside of acting. You know, that have had kind of they've, they've worked in other areas. I can't, I can't, I don't know how to work with someone who's just been an actor before. It doesn't, it's not how I." No, it's not how my process works. Yeah. Which I totally respect and, and yeah, yeah, appreciate. Yeah. But um but uh it, <laughs> it was <laughs> I don't think I don't think it wasn't even it wasn't even a blow at the time. It was just like it was oh. maybe a little blow because I, I really oh. I, I really would love to work with Ken Lodge, but but I um I totally respect that. You know, I've I've not had another job. I've not I've not um I mean I've been unemployed plenty and I've <laughs> Well, know, that's a job I, in itself. Else. And you've been a father. That's a job too. Yeah. And when I was starting out in... When I was starting out in London, there was many times where, you know, I'd be um, claiming income support or whatever it was to, you know, pay the rent or the to eat and that sort of thing. There's, there was plenty of periods of that, which mm-hmm. was a bit easier than in the, I guess, in the late 80s than it was in... You know, than it is now. A lot easier, probably. Mm-hmm. But um, so, yeah, um, that's kind of that's kind of how I fell into fell into it. You know. Um. So, like, was there? But there was. The, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was, was going to say there was a there was a point. I remember watching. Uh, a play for today, I think it was on on uh, BBC Two one night watching the Dumb Waiter, 
Ah, and, Pinter, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, something just clicked in me, like, because I found it really powerful, the play. I, I just find it so fascinating and gripping and uh, the, the sort of impending sense of kind of terror and suspense and uh, mm-hmm. the world that created just two guys in a room. And I think that at that point I realised like something, some penny dropped mm-hmm. about the power, the power of theatre and sort of function or purpose of... Beautiful, yeah, beautiful, I, beautiful confusion, like a beautiful sense of confusion and, and curiosity. Fascination, yeah, and and yeah, I think, I think I just realised like it just felt like it came together for me there. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say confusion. I, th- I feel like it came together there, like oh, the, that's what theatre is. Like, an, epi- like, an, epi- like you know? an epiphany. I can do that. I want to be part of that. I want to. I that's that's what I want to be part of. Yeah, mm. and it's probably about fourteen or something at a time, maybe something like that, maybe fifteen. I don't know. Um. This I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was. Uh, I did not think that I could. It was I thought it was preposterous to be an actor for a long time after I was actually making a living as an actor, and and uh, and a long time after I did my first acting job, like ten years probably after mm-hmm. my first acting job, I, I thought, oh, maybe I should try to take this seriously. Mm. You know, because I thought it was preposterous that I could be one and that I could make a living doing that, even though I was doing that, and even though I bought a flat in London, and even though I, you know, you know, from acting. And do you? And, uh, I remember when I was in drama school, I was told, and I, you know, I thought it was ridiculous at the time, but we, we, one of our tutors told us, you won't feel. Or you certainly won't feel comfortable enough to say that you're an actor until you've been working for at least twenty years, and you'll always, mm. you know, it, it was that a thing for you or like and imposter syndrome? It's a regular thing that comes up on even, you know, regardless of the status or whatever of of whoever's on. It seems to be a regular thing that comes up. And th- does it ever go away? Should you ever feel as if you're on top of it? Uh, well. I I know what you're talking about, and I I sort of maybe see it slightly different, mm-hmm. which is I'm not an actor. I work <laughs> as an actor. That's a good say. Yeah. I work I work as an actor. I'm not an actor. I'm just I'm I'm me. I don't know what I am. I I, I kind of struggling enough to f- to figure out what the hell I am. You know, enough of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I don't need to add. Act, you know, like. The weight, the weight, of the, the psychological yeah. weight of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, m- being me is enough of a, like, <laughs> a, a kind of problem and a question to to kind of dwell, to to kind of be occupied with. You know, I work as an actor. That's that's always how I have seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an actor. I work as an actor. That's, that's my work. That's how. That's mm-hmm. unfortunate that I can make a living doing that. Um, or I have been able to make a living doing that, but uh, I'm I'm me. Like I don't know what that is either. Like I'm just this thing that is trying <laughs> to figure itself out. You know, isn't a as uh, Leonard Cohen said? I think in his last album, he said we are nothing but the elaboration of a tube. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's you a, know, that's, I, 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 it's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's that's just one thing you do. It, it seems to be a thing, and maybe less so in Scotland or in the UK, but in Ireland particularly, there's um, there's the consideration that if you have ideas to be cre- a creative person to do lots of different things, I mean, you need to be in one box and one box only. And if you try to be a director or if you try to be an artist or if you try to be a writer or if you try to be a musician or if you try to be a producer and you do all of these things, you, you know, there's the perception that you're like a, a jack of all trades and a master of kind and none, you know, or you're hedging your bets to try and get somewhere further up the ladder regardless of what the the discipline is do you believe that being a creative person is applicable to a number of different disciplines and you shouldn't um you shouldn't curtail yourself by saying you know i work as only an actor or i do this or i do that would you encourage people to do more to explore new things i well i say do what the hell you want to do and do it don't talk about it do it Mm -hmm. like it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. Like the actual identity of being a writer or a director or an actor or it's kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Like you can call yourself that as much as you want, but what the fuck are you doing? You know, like what are you doing? <laughs> do it, do it. Don't talk about it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and whatever you're doing is what you're doing. Uh, what you call it is kind of not here nor there. Like it's. Uh, what matters is what you're making. That's what matters. What What are you attempting to articulate? What are you attempting to share? What are you attempting to communicate? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that journey, however it is, whatever that involves, it might involve technically producing, writing, directing, conceiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to involve communication, you know. It's going to involve... Uh, for any for any of that stuff to happen that involves other people, there's going to be an element of um, confidence that people other people will have to have in whatever the endeavor is that is a, that it is a going concern, you know that it is happening, you know that 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 uh, demands confidence from other people. Like, oh, this this person is doing something mm-hmm. that I want to be part of because I think it's worth making or, or it's there's something exciting about it or it's, mm-hmm. it's in an area that I want to have experience in or, or oh, I'm curious about so like or if you you know if somebody has a lot of these projects you know there's money uh, they can be they can be just ridiculously expensive to make so people have to feel confident about putting money into something if uh that they might never see again, or mm-hmm. or they feel confident about putting money into something, confident that they're going to see that money back in their hand, you know, uh, because uh, the kind of project it is, or you know, this this that that kind of confidence in a project is one thing, but uh, like how the thing is made, just I just think like whatever you whatever you're doing to make your stuff good. Whatever you call yourself, I I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like that's that that that's just an identity kind of thing, and it's the same, and probably in the same way that like a, I feel a, like a, not comfortable. Like a, like a societal labeling of these, you know, moving parts, you know, or these different uh, interpretations of what it is to be creative, like a maker. 
Like, consider yourself more of a maker, somebody who turns their hand and their mind to, to things in a positive capacity. Yeah, you're in, uh, yeah, in service of something. Mm-hmm. The you truth. Know, we're, oh, all, right. we're all in service of something. I wouldn't even say the truth. I would say, like, whatever the project is. Like, mm-hmm. the project might be, you know, ridiculous conceit. Yeah. You know, which is which is fine, uh, and it might have some element of truth in it, but yeah, if if I choose to be in service of it, then you don't do that halfway. You you you're putting yourself in service of something, uh, with with whatever you have. So like so I suppose like a creative honesty of effort, really. Uh, Creative honesty of effort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Let me just jump into something else for a sec. Um, just about re- rejection, you know, because there's always that perception this guy's on the TV, this guy's doing this, you know, X amount of credits mm-hmm. and so on. How do you deal? And we ask everybody that comes on the same question um, how do you deal with rejection? Mm, well, I've had so decade, you know, so many decades of um, of experience with that that yeah, I've I've absorbed <laughs> it in the best ways that I can over the years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more the years go by, the less. Um, the less I feel the rejection in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a cycle of rejection. Like being an actor uh, is, you know, it's hand in glove with uh, this kind of trajectory of you know, <laughs> success and <laughs> failure. Y- rejection, y- rejection, rejection, yang, rejection. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and it it can be hurtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, the last time I felt um, like pained about it wasn't that long ago, actually. I mean, although in, in general, I don't really, you know, probably the last 10 years, I don't really think about it. But the, I, mean, I know there's a few years ago, there's a project that I thought was just brilliant script and brilliant part. And I felt like, I really know what I want to do with that part, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of stung a little. I kind of it stung. It stung. Yeah, that they cast somebody else in that part. You know, um, how, how long should anyone dwell on something like that? Is it something that you should let kind of flow through your veins, as it were, and then just acknowledge it, mark it, and then recover quickly, move on? Well, look, I mean, everybody has their own way of, of absorbing things, you know, and some, some, uh, you know, we, we all deal with, you know, outside of acting, we, we all in our lives have dealt with trauma, you know, in different kinds of ways and different times in our life, you know. Yeah. And uh, how you absorb trauma in in yourself, the, uh, the things that people, the, f- the ways that people find to do that, um, to help with that, 
is uh, you know are, var- are various. You know, mm-hmm. it can be in it can be in uh, alcohol, or it can be in you know gambling, or it can be in you know uh, relationships, or it can be in you know there's, there's there's different ways like people kind of find to absorb stuff and work stuff out, and um, um, and it's the same with it's the same with that kind of rejection, I guess. Yeah. I mean, for, for so, so I, I wouldn't prescribe how <laughs> anyone should deal with it because you all, you know, everybody's got their own, their own tools and their own story and their own, um, their, their own struggle to kind of, you deal with it the hard way. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's all you just deal with it the hard way. Um, because that's your story. And, and over time, over time, you probably become more able to uh, absorb it and, and to deal with it in ways that are more holistic. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you practice any mindfulness at all? Uh, maybe from time to time. Yeah, from time to time, I might, I might do. But um, yeah, I mean, this. That's. Stuff is about your relationship with yourself, mm-hmm. really, and that's something that's your your story that's been going on going on <laughs> since the day you can remember. You know, mm-hmm. that's your relationship with yourself. And you know, whether whether it's like uh, you know, very, I realized at an early age I needed to get a handle on jealousy because an em, an envy because if I didn't, that was just going to uh, pack eat pa- me, Pac-Man you know? up your career. Yeah, yeah. If you if if uh, if I hadn't, I just felt like if if I am going to allow myself to f- to feel like these feelings, then I am going to I'm going to be eaten alive. You know, mm-hmm. there's always somebody else that's going to get the job because they're you know, better than you, or they're great. You know, yeah. they're, they're yeah more handsome, or they're more clever, or they're more experienced or they're more you know whatever they're all there's always somebody else and if i realized like quite early when i was still a teenager that i uh that i couldn't handle like being in that situation over and over if <laughs> i it didn't have you know if i was gonna um allow things like uh, jealousy to to um, rule me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I suppose mastering that is the key to um, being productive, you know, because you find different ways to to gain satisfaction from your endeavors, you know, your creative endeavors, um, being of service, like you said, to to whatever wor- whatever you're working on, but also to others as well can be incredibly. Um, um, empowering in a different way I'd imagine because obviously you teach now as well and I'm sure you get a great deal out of that um, and obviously you're going, to, you're going to be working with us at FNI next month which is very exciting for everybody who's signed up um, but I might just ask you a little bit about um, I mean you've worked with like from a director's point of view you've worked with uh, some like wonderful directors and actors and Werner Herzog as well and <laughs> um, and say the likes of Danny Boyle and Har- Harmony Corrine and you've done some like 
broadly very diverse stuff as an actor, you know, and blockbuster stuff and, you know, the likes of Michael Bay and Paddy Jenkins in Wonder Woman and stuff. Um, is there a recognisable quality, say, between all of those creatives? Or they, or maybe you have someone like uh, Boone John Ho, right, who's uh, both of those things, or perceived to be both of those things. Um, are, what similarities do the, these people have? And what is it, do you think, that makes like a good director or, or a good artistic collaborator in that way? Um, well, I'd say the people that you've people that you mentioned, mm. they all do possess a vision of something that they're trying to maintain, an idea of the project that they are uh, trying to execute. And they're all great communicators. Uh, and I say great communicators, uh, what I mean generally is they can, they have the ability to communicate something with the least possible amount of words. You know, they're, they're able to uh, convey something with great economy so that you can understand like, ah, I get it. And I get what you need from, I get what you're asking from me. We're good. <laughs> I can do that. Um, let's try that, mm -hmm. and I'll try and I'll try and give you because I because I understand what you are needing for this scene. Mm -hmm. um, and if I if I feel like I'm in that situation, uh, great. What what I sometimes run into over over time the stuff that when I when I find it hard and I feel like I'm in danger is when the directors. You ask the director a question about something, and uh, they spend a lot of time explaining something mm. uh, and uh, referencing lots of different kinds of stuff to answer your question. Then I get lost. Then I'm thinking like, "That's I'm asking something <laughs> really specific," but. Um, I'd say the, the directors that you mentioned, they're, they're great communicators. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, I don't uh, know, is, is I don't know a good response sometimes, you know, if you're trying to work something out, you know, with somebody, I don't know, let's figure it out, you know? Uh, it, it, it can be, but it depends on the context, yeah. Mm -hmm. Depends on the context. I mean, okay. a, lot, a lot of times you, you have to be adaptable as an actor, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, or it makes your life uh, less frictioned if you are are able to be adaptable to a situation where somebody's giving you a lot of information and also work in an environment where somebody's giving you no information. You know, so in a in a situation where someone's giving you a lot of information, you've got a lot of things to try to absorb that uh, you need to deliver in the scene. And if somebody's giving you no information, you have to have a lot of initiative that you have to then uh, execute and deliver in the scene, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so, 
that involves like taking the initiative. Hey, hope you're enjoying the episode. Here's a bit of FNI news for you. Don't tell anyone, but our brand new mentors program is approaching and we're about to launch our second phase. Don't miss out on some one-on-one opportunities to chat with some wonderful people who are passionate about helping others. Some of the really awesome people taking part in 2022 are Peter Coonan of Love Hate Fame, Ashling Franciosi, who stars opposite Sandra Bullock in her next role, director Laura Way of EastEnders, and Kieran Foy of Eli and The Haunting of Bly Manor and Citadel Fame. All you have to do to be matched with one of these or the many more film and TV folk graciously sending the elevator back down for FNI is visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI and sign up to become a member and we'll be contacting you with more information afterwards. Stay positive, everyone. Good things are around the corner in 2022. Visit wearefni.com for more things Film Network Ireland. If you're having a difficult time of things at the moment, may we suggest you visit mindingcreativeminds.ie. You're not alone out there. Merry Christmas. I think everything uh, that I'm involved in does require initiative, you know. Yeah. If I... If I feel I have to abandon my initiative on something, I get a bit lost and I don't really know what I'm doing or why. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to hold on to some sense of what my initiative is with a scene or or a character or um, the intent. Yeah. The intention or in that moment, I guess. Um, do you like to improvise ad lib? Is that allowed? Uh, I, I mean, I've worked in uh, lots of environments where it's been completely necessary. Um, I've worked in lots of environments where it's not allowed. Ah, okay. You know, and and I've, I've worked in, uh, in environments where it's allowed too much. Mm. And that can be you know. detrimental in different ways, can it? When, when the uh, lunatics take over the asylum, kind of thing, is it? <laughs> well, I think I think the thing with improvisation is that uh, you know I'm living in America, and, and here uh, one of the you know sort of traditions of performance here is Im- improv. Improv, they call it improv, mm-hmm. and. What improv is, is kind of a bridge between stand-up comedy and uh, drama or something, I think, seems to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the currency is laughs with improv. It's like try to try to be interesting or try to... So like a laugh-ometer, laugh-ometer, oh, that's yeah, good, keep it yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't like that. Like, I, I, that's, that's kind of for me. Is uh, not something that I, I just find it tiresome. Mm-hmm. You know, like so for me. So that that tradition of improvisation, mm-hmm. improv. I just generally find like it's about being clever. Who's the cleverest person in the room? It's mm-hmm. about me, me, me. Yeah, it's not about. So, what I like 
about acting is it's in in my mind it's it's not about this person or this person being interesting. Mm-hmm. It's what happens between them. That's what's interesting and beautiful. Uh, but in improv, it's it's the opposite of that. It's about this person. It's a gunfight, isn't it? Bang, yeah, bang. Yeah, it's kind of like, you could see it like scoring points or, or yeah, a gunfight. Or, but it's about, or the lafometer that you're talking about, you know. And to me, that's not kind of theatre that I'm interested in. It just doesn't, that's like a sport. It's like sport, like, so, so, and I'm not interested in sport at all, sorry to say, like, it's a, sport for me is like the dramatisation of success and failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's like a sort of a, a mass group, uh, weekly or you know, you know, for the duration of the season of whichever sport it is. It's like the dramatization of success and failure, which is something as humans we're completely obsessed with. Yeah. This idea of you know where do I stand in relation to somebody else or in relation to uh, my my business or relation to my peers or, mm-hmm. you know, my enemies or where do, I, where do I stand, you know, like, so, like, success and failure is something that we're constantly, our psyche is constantly trying to place us, pin us on the wheel, you know, like, of success and failure and fuel, like, um, success, and to me, sport is just like, uh, the function that it serves is like, it, it, it dramatizes this tribalism, uh, mythical, this mythical kind of concept that we're obsessed with as, as, as living beings, as human beings, and mm-hmm. it plays out every every game. You know, so the team that you support, you know, is going to is going to be victorious this week, or they're going to lose, and you're going to you're going to you're going to be successful alongside them, or along with them, because you support them, or you're going to feel the feel that painful failure alongside them because. You 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 hurt like they hurt for lo- you know for being the loser or you know and 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 to me that that is theater but it's what but it's only one idea mm-hmm. like it's success or failure it's just like this binary idea that just goes round and round and there's nothing there's no other ideas in sport other than that for me in that theater but the theater I like <laughs> is a theater of ideas where somebody's trying to like build from one idea to another idea and to reach you with I- with ideas and reach you with ideas mm-hmm. and ideas are not like a binary thing Ide- ideas can can uh, branch out you know mm-hmm. like like a, like a tree or a forest or whatever and so um, and connect connect people in a different kind of way than sport uh, yeah. connects people. Yeah. Sport, sport, they both really connect people. Mm-hmm. They both they're both like glue for people. But they're less competitive. But, uh, mm-hmm. but but yeah, and 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 so a lot like a lot of people fucking hate me for for uh, denigrating like sport like that. Uh, but that's for me the interest I have in things. And this is all coming out of improv. You just ask, like, oh, do you like improvisation? You know, but uh, that's that's where uh, it is in the constellation of things for me. Like improvisation, yeah. I've I worked with Mike Lee and uh, uh, that film. I did a film with him where it was completely improvised. But he, that's his methodology. 
mm-hmm. is like a steel trap. You know, nobody is improvising on set of his films. You know, it's all the improvisation happens Prior. in the development process. No one's allowed to improvise on his set. You're not allowed to improvise on his set. Okay. But there's no word in any of his films that hasn't come from the mind of an actor. Like, nothing has been scripted that hasn't come from improvisation. So it's all come from improvisation in the development process, mm-hmm. rehearsal process. But when, when he's... Uh, Filming, you're on set. You're not allowed to improvise. This is set in stone by that point. The scenes, the scripting of the scenes is all set in stone. Mm-hmm. So, and I've worked with Harmony Kareen, where the script had no dialogue in it. Maybe two scenes in the film had had scripted dialogue, and everything else was improvised. And that was, you know, a lot of times it was only, it was only one take because the pe- people in the scene were not aware that they were in a film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing um, kids when I was a kid, frankly, I shouldn't have been watching it. I was like, I don't know, I was maybe 14 or 15 and it just blew my my mind. Um, I was working, I was very lucky when I was younger, I worked with a group in theatre, in U Theatre, who are now filmmakers and very good ones at that in the company called Desperate Optimists. I don't know if you're aware of them. Mm-hmm. But they do some incredible work. And we were analysing Harmony Corrine's work and senior film as well around that time. I think it was like in the year 2000, 2001. So I think that was around that time, wasn't it? Julian Donkey Boy, 99 maybe? It came out, it came, yeah, we made it in 99. I don't know if it came out the following year or around yeah. that time, yeah. And it, it you know, yeah. just that way of working and... and analysing behaviours, you know, bringing it right back to kind of drama, observational drama, animalistic 101 stuff, bringing it right back to the essence Mm. and the core of character was really fascinating at that time and didn't really understand it and felt maybe, I suppose, partially uncomfortable at times, but at least, you know, we were exploring. It felt as if you're on on the cusp of something different and new and kind of mixed media stuff and, you know, exploring different art forms and blending them and taking them away and putting stuff in and taking it out and, you know, just, it was very exciting. Um, did it feel mm-hmm. like that when you were on that set? Uh, on Julian, I mean, it yeah. felt like, uh, yeah, it was very intense. Um, yeah, it was it was very intense, but but brilliant. And it was a brilliant set to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a, that's an unusual film, I think. One of the things that's unusual about it is that uh, there's no scene in the film that follows the aesthetic of any other scene in the film. And if you see nearly any director putting together a film, will put together like a conceptual uh, organization of ideas, which might be a lookbook or it might be mood boards um, or whatever. A thesis, or it might be whatever it is, uh, you know, or it might just be many conversations with their cinematographer, or but um, generally, films today are made with a with a visual aesthetic concept that involves the production designer, the uh, cinematographer, the costume designer, makeup designer, uh, and and the the aesthetic concept is something that the whole film, the world of the film is created from. So 
like you know what will often happen is we'll decide not to use any blues in this no color blue mm-hmm. you know we're going we're going because we want to make a color palette that reflects an emotional state that is then at the end you know we use you know subliminally we're going to use color to do that or the depth of field of the lenses that we're using mm-hmm. are going to be strictly one you know very particular specific depth like fo- of field focal that length use. Or, yeah yeah so using, yeah and so, 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 so like that 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 that, that aesthetic is is really uh, uh, how films are made generally today. But that film, Julian Donkey Boy, every single scene in it was made with a different aesthetic, completely different aesthetic from from any other scene in the film. Uh, so they they look at the menu on their on these little consumer video cameras that they had. Mm-hmm. Him and Anthony Dodd Mantle, cinematographer, and they'd look at the menu of special effects and they'd say, like, oh, what does this infrared effect do? Let's, should we try it? Yeah, let's shoot it. Let's shoot the scene on that. You know, and they had, a, they had like 20 different kinds of cameras and spy cameras and wow. uh, uh, all kinds of uh, different kinds of uh, video cameras. They were just consumer things that we were using. HDV, uh, HDV, to, to film like, it on. How very Dogma ninety five of everybody. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was like the first American Dogma uh, film. Maybe one of the only. I think there was maybe one other American Dogma film. But um, can I jump? On, can I jump on a little bit and just? Um, I want to ask you about. You know, the I suppose the part or the the, the legacy part that people would be most familiar uh, in relation to you. I want to ask you about the crossing of the air forms on that from the stage show, train spotting, obviously, um, for the train spotters who's listening, uh, in, in, in the audience who's listening, the inception of that project into its iteration on screen and then developing a character, an established character, and revisiting it what I don't know. What was it? Seventeen years later, twenty years later at the time uh, when you when you made uh, Train Spotting Two. How how was that journey from stage to film, and then maybe never thinking that you'll re- revisit that, and then having to jump back into that again so many years later, and just the pathos of your character all, all the way. That's why people respond to it because it's it's so empathetic, it's so deep, it's so human that portrayal of that character you play in, in that in those series of narratives um what was it like creating it how did you get into it initially i mean from the very inception of interpreting the play into the performances um in both of the films and then i suppose revisiting that and coming back so many years later um well it, it was an adventure definitely and and each time yeah, uh, you know, the doing, the doing the play was was uh, a thrill ride, and, and a bit it felt like biting off more than I could chew. And then, sorry, doing the, yeah, doing the theatre play originally, mm-hmm. and then the, the film felt like similarly that sense of biting off more than you could chew. And then, the, and then the <laughs> the final the final film like the. The T2 film, similarly, you know, felt like biting off more than you could chew, but that's what you gotta do, you know. Mm-hmm. What else are you gonna do? 
you're just going to say no or, you know, be in your safe place or, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, and the journey of it is from, you know, seems like a, a sort of trajectory, but really it's this sort of random kind of, uh, there's something very random about it. The fact that I got cast in the play, uh, and I was playing a, I was playing a different character in the play, mm-hmm. um, and the play is a different, you know, had a different. Um, this is the original production of Trainspot, and I uh, got produced many, many times in many different countries and, and many different tours, and played in, you know, many different groups of actors did the play subsequently. But this was just uh, the first adaptation of the novel that. Um, really was everything in the play was from the page of the novel there was nothing in it that had been uh, things had only been edited out you know of of the prose was that um what was that process like? It shows it's a, like a wonderful reflection of the type of actor that you are as well you know to be able to interpret something completely different and really make it your own. And like I said, I think your character in, in that whole narrative is is the heart, is the empathy, is the soul, you know, of, of, of the whole narrative, I feel. As wonderful as everybody else is in it, um, you know. Well, I, I, you know, actors work in different ways and I mean, probably one of, th- one of the things that I'll be talking to you know, some of the actors that you're putting together for uh, the workshop that we'll be running. Um, one of the things that is important to me and what works for me as an actor is uh, there needs to be something that I recognise in what I'm reading Mm-hmm. I need I need to try to find something that I recognise, um, and I guess with with that character in Train Spotting, he reminded me of a couple of things. You know, one one of the things was someone I'd been at school with uh, briefly. I think he, I think he was only I think we were only at the same school for a year or two, and then he kind of disappeared. But there was a kid in that school that really was fascinating and something really odd about him and hilarious about him and tragic about him and uh, something, I mean, physically beautiful, but something beautiful in his spirit, you know, that that I was really struck by, you know, as a, as a like a sort of 11-year-old kid or 12-year-old kid, you know, just... And he he was kind of like the butt of everybody's joke, but mm. he there was something so and he was so funny at the same time, and and people just ripped him to pieces the whole time, and I, my heart went out to him, you know. But there was something that he had that was uh, that I recognised that resonated with what I was reading in in the script, in the the Trainspotting script, for, you know, the character Spud. I thought, like, ah, it really reminds me of 
like this guy, and I never tried to mimic this guy before, mm -hmm. uh, ever. Yeah. You know, but the fact that I, I recognized something resonant between those, between him and, and what I was reading in the scenes and the kind of the sense of humor of it uh, really helped me. And, and another thing that really helped me is I'd, I'd been doing the stage play a year or two before that and uh, I've been working with a, a wonderful actor called James Cunningham, Jim Cunningham, who uh, he'd been playing Spud in the stage play alongside, he was also playing Tommy in the stage play and he may have also been playing, because there was just four of us in the play playing the different characters and I was, I was playing the Mark Renton character uh, in the play so we'd have scenes together every night on stage and <laughs> just watching this guy what he found in that character just killed me it was just so like it was so great to watch every night you know and, and to be in the, be in the scene with him every night and what he was finding in it uh, really Absolutely. spoke to me as well and so I think there's that combination of that you know like this this kid that uh, I'd been at school with for a couple of years, and then and then uh, the things that Jim was finding in it as an actor, you know, that was there was some kind of uh, fusion of those ideas that I was able to articulate in a way, or I was able to. Oh. Yeah, it, 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 it dropped out there. It was. Uh, I can't hear you now. I think you're, you're muted. You muted, Paul. And we're back and ready for round two. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I, I got ninety percent of that just up until it just cut off there. But yeah, wow. you said you, you you found a great um, in the truest sense of the world, acting is listening, right? So when you were on stage, you were getting so much from uh, Jim Cunningham, was it, interpreting his the pathos of the character. Yeah, yeah, from Jim, and then that combination of, you know, like, what he'd found in the character and this this kid that I'd been at school with, just that combination of what I, stuff that I recognised, the humour that I recognised, and also my sense of humour uh, forces me to, you know, my sense of humour asks me to push certain elements, yeah. you know, because that's what I find funny. And I want to. I don't know mm -hmm. if I'm going to push now. I'm going to. I want to see how far I can push it before, like, I feel like it falls apart. So, you know, there's things in that character that are quite extreme. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, Danny, you know, Danny Boyle didn't subscribe me to do anything. You know, he he, he just encouraged us all to to explore and and to see how far we could take something but you know and he trusted us um that we'd find that edge you know i think when i think of robert carlyle in that film as well he, <laughs> he takes he takes things to takes things to the edge you know? yeah, yeah yeah um and that's what's great about robert is he he takes it to the edge he doesn't doesn't go beyond that but he he finds that edge and i think um you know, there's a darkness that Johnny Lee Miller finds as well, that he he takes it to that edge mm -hmm. of, of darkness, you know, with with his guy. And and uh 
and you know, and and in in the Trainspot film, McGregor, you know, McGregor has to be like the, he has to be like this weird everyman kind of. The, he has to be the center consciousness, you know, and mm-hmm. and he, he like he really possesses that, you know. So, like and and you know and and like Robert, I I am drawn to that edge, you know, like to see how far you can take something before it falls apart, you know, and and you know, and oftentimes. And oftentimes it will fall apart, you know. <laughs> you, it, you have to go there, but if yeah, you don't, yeah. but if you don't go there, then uh, I, then you're. If I don't go there, then I don't know. Like I don't know where the edge is, and I, and it hurts when it goes. You know, you know, it is like you have to put yourself in that jeopardy. You have you have to put yourself like close to being embarrassed. You know by. Yeah. You know, your gaucheness, you know, like of, of like taking something too far, you know. Do you think... Um, I, I, I feel, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, do you take think, a certain kind of... Take courage. Do you th- yeah, absolutely. It, it's bravery. Um, do you... Do you think that actors should always do or at least express the possibility of, of doing too much? And when I say doing too much, I mean showing kind of... Um, I don't mean overacting or overdoing it, but if the part requires for it, or in general terms, in terms of auditioning for something like that or in- inhabiting a character like that, give them, mm. you know, the wildest interpretation of something, to at least to show that you can get there and then pair it back, as opposed to not doing enough and then people worrying that you can't get up to the, those heights. Well, you know, we we all have our process that we kind of find by accident some some very trained actors are kind of delivered a, a system to through their training to to get to where they need to be you know like a methodical kind of system it could be like uh, what what gets called the, the method or it could be you know what a British drama school or American drama, drama school like Yale might give you a system a framework Mm. scaffolding to kind of like apply to every project you know and um and so uh i i have my own kind of playground that i if i have a script in my head mm-hmm. you know it's going around that playground where i'm exploring it and i'm trying to think see where you know see what that territory is uh in my head and trying things out with it in my head, uh, but that's that's my kind of process. Yeah. And I've, you know, in the classes that I've been teaching, mm-hmm. uh, I find that I I really challenge the students to take things to their edges. You know, I don't mean like. Um, you know, trying to push someone emotionally over the edge, of course, all, uh, mm-hmm. or psychologically over the edge. But I, I do challenge the students to find the meaning in something, the reason why something is being said. Mm-hmm. You know, what? Why are you? Why is this person saying that? Like, you have to. You have to make that real mm-hmm. 
There's a reason this person is saying that. And if, if you don't make that real, then you better cut the line because that line is not doing anything. Mm-hmm. There's a reason the person, so what is the reason? So I, I'm like, yeah, I, I think about reason a lot with, with acting. What is, the, what is the purpose of this? What is the reason, the reasoning? Uh, all of that stuff I'm very exacting about with the students, I find. That I have been so far. Um, so I don't let people hide in shadows with that. Yeah, yeah. Know? Quick, quick thing, just about technical things. I know you, you know. I don't want you to give, tell us how the sausage sausage is made in terms of how you how you work, but in terms of character and lines and stuff, which is first for you? Is it get a hold of the character, then jump into lines closer to the to the to the time, or is it a case of just getting off book as much as you can and then? Well, I mean, ideally, ideally. I want to. I want there to be something that I recognise in the in this text, in these words, mm-hmm. that something that I feel like, oh, I recognise that. I I I think I know what I could do with that. That there's there's something in this text that resonates with something that I understand. Yeah, uh, and I feel like that can be a good marriage. So let me try this. And if, if if I try it and I feel like yeah, or or I feel like ah no it's not really it's not adding up, you know. But I I keep trying to find something that uh, I understand in it, like that I recognise, and then build from there. Mm-hmm. So um, the the words are important at that point in the beginning. Ideally, I have an idea of who this person is, and then. I'll, I will work to make the the language work, the lines work around that. But if you've got two tapes to prepare for tomorrow, <laughs> you know, or, or, or and and and, mm-hmm. and you know, a meeting on Saturday that you've got to uh, be off book for, and uh, you know, th- in those kind of circumstances. You don't necessarily have too much of a luxury to kind of uh, feel things out. Uh, so you might just need to buckle down and start drilling on the lines. You know? Yeah. And then, and then, you know, in the course of that, in the course of that, you might find space for the things come up, you know, that uh, ideas come up or things that, you know, reason, rationale for mm. why this person is saying that. You know, starts to kind of come clearer for you. And you know, and sometimes, 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 you know, a lot of the time you're making those choices, you're making those decisions. Yeah. Like the writer has their own decision. The writer has their own reasons, um, and and your reasons might be very much in sympathy with that. But they might not be. Yeah. But you have to have reasons that uh, you can you can bridge through. You know, like that. You have to make, be able to make some kind of sense of it. Otherwise, yeah. you you'll be you your work will 
reflect kind that. of lack the integrity, lack the integrity that you want it to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I've been in that situation tons of times. So how do you how do you, to, how do you bash, how do you, how do you kind of bash through that if you're not connecting with it? And it's just a case of just the, the practicalities of just like you said, drilling drilling the lines, doing the job, and going home. Um, well, it's about for me. It's about belief. Uh, I think the power of belief is this self-delusion, this, like magic, magic juice that humans have. Yeah, like it's everything that we revolve around revolves around belief. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of at every level, whether you're like a non-believer or in anything or whatever, or devoutly fanatical about stuff. Uh, the the power of belief is um, is kind of it rules us as as people and how we think and how we behave. Mm-hmm. It impacts on our behaviour and on our thinking and our communication and language. So, uh, for me, I in that situation that you're describing, where where there are kind of holes in 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 the material that you're trying to prepare that you don't really know how to bridge like those holes uh, or because in the, in the, a lot of times it's holes in your own understanding you know it's, it's like it's um, it can be deficit in your own understanding we've all got limits we're all limited by our understanding Mm-hmm. That's that's the limits of what we can uh, control as an actor, yeah. um, and so I feel like for me, I choose to believe for the purposes of this scene. Yeah. I choose to believe this because I choose to believe this, uh, or my character believes this mm. so to do the scene i choose to believe this so it's like and that 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 and through that i can reach this part of the scene i can reach from this part of the scene to this part of the scene it's like choosing um, you know you know that psychological thing about choosing to be positive and interpreting the world every day and seeing the best in things you know it is that kind like right, that yeah, mind, mind yeah. trick that mind trick of right okay it is i great. think yeah you can believe things uh through experience mm-hmm. of life and I think that's ideal, mm-hmm. you know, like that your belief is formed from the things that you experience. Yeah. But you can also choose to believe. You also have the power to choose to believe something for the purposes of this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that moment, yeah. Or this, or this, or this character, or this story. You, <laughs> you have the power to choose to believe it for just within this environment. And then you can let it go. Then you can let these beliefs go. Yeah. You know, but there, there but if can you, be if, if miracles to... when you believe. <laughs> but I, it, cliched as it sounds, but yeah, just it, it's self-delusion, right? It's the no, I wouldn't exactly call it Dunning the Dunning Kruger effect, but your it's having the the cognitive awareness to fool yourself, you know, to get through it. I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, acting like. Fooling is 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 a nice uh, way to think of it as well because 
you maybe know, I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying. To, to 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 fool and to be fooled is kind of like the joy of theater. You know, like yeah. to fool somebody and and to and to feel to be fooled is that there's something <laughs> about that is the, like the joy of the magic of yeah. the magic of theater. You know, and um, but yeah, I think for me. For me, choosing, I choose to believe for the purposes of this scene, uh, this, this is what I choose to believe. And that this can get me from here to there. But uh, that's something that I've, you know, found over time and that I, uh, that, that works for me. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's something that we'll, it probably would be something that we'll talk about uh, in the course of these classes, just um, so that sort of concept or philosophy, and and then in practice, like how how can that work or how might that work? Mm -hmm. Just for anybody who's listening in, Yoon will be joining us for a series of classes in December, of which you can still apply for now. Unfortunately, you only have twelve places, but if you go to wearefni.com. Um, you can see how you can fill out an application, write us a few words and tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll try to um, um, pick the best suited uh, actors for this particular project. Um, I'll just finish off on one question, which again, we kind of ask everybody um, who comes in. Um, Yon, do you feel... Do you feel as if... Like, what's recognition for you? Do you do awards or the notion of awards? Because you, you you touched on kind of uh, the, co the competitive nature of sport and how that's kind of unhealthy, that winner loser idea. Does uh, do, like does that kind of recognition or awards or you know he was the best at ideology do anything for you or is it the collective that that the collaboration that uh, gets you going? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's that sort of recognition is is uh, a sort of byproduct. It's nothing to do with what's what matters and uh, what's the point, you know. Of, for me, like I don't. I, uh, that's how I choose to see it. Like recognition is he, not here nor there. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? Like. What are you doing, and why are you doing it? Like that; those are the things that uh, are relevant. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What's the point? Like those are the things that uh, matter. Like recognition. I don't know. Go and self-soothe yourself. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. Um, but. Um, that's that's how I guess that's kind of quite a sort of Calvinist way of looking at it, you know. Like, but what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What's the point? Mm -hmm. What, like, yeah? Are, what are you in service of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and 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 with acting, and with, oh, this is you know, and closing up. And, but this is like one of the sort of fundamental things that I, I discussed with the, with the class in the beginning, 
or I have been with 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 the other classes I've been teaching, is uh, there are uh, several. It's probably like five or six um, answers to that question mm-hmm. of what are you in service of. Let's say, like, I'm in service of the writing. I'm in service of the director. That's mm. the vision. I'm in service of the producer, who's who's I'm working for. You know, I'm turning up to work for, and is paying my wages. Uh, I'm in service of the audience. I'm in service of the character. Uh, I'm in service of myself. Mm-hmm. So, like, I say, that's a good six things. There's probably more, <laughs> but the six, the six things that clearly are are in parallel, some kind of parallel with each other when you're working, and you cannot be in service of six things equally. So. There's a higher, you know, we all have our own hierarchy that we put these into. You know, that these, these, we don't sit down and think, oh, what, let me make a note of this, what I'm putting in my hierarchy today. <laughs> we, you know, like we naturally, naturally, yeah. that, that is the, act, the actor that you are is, is uh, a result of how subconsciously that hierarchy is arranged. Like, what are you in service of? Mm-hmm. Any, there's nothing that's wrong in that. Yeah, yeah. In those, but in it does those, change as you, you can, go along, right? I mean, in your career. I mean, you serve different masters or different, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but, but you can still be in service of the same thing every time you do a job. Like, I think generally it's not like you don't choose. In a way, you don't choose it really uh, consciously. Like, you just naturally, you naturally are in, in service of these things. So... Like, what is most important out of that for you as an actor? And that's different for me as an actor or for any other actor. That, that hierarchy of things uh, will, will vary from actor to actor. And it doesn't make anybody a worse actor or a better actor. It, it just is just their signature. Like, uh, um, so I've worked with actors who it's all about them. Like, mm. the only thing they're in service of is them. And I, you know, some of those actors, I think are brilliant, and I've had a really nice time with. Some of them, I just think like, what a, what an arrogant, like prick, or you know, like this is like working with a brick wall. Yeah. You know, they're just thinking about themselves. But I'm. There's been plenty of times where I've been in that situation. I've then gone and seen the film, watched the film, and thought like, shit, I'm really good. <laughs> God, it's not fair. Life's not fair. They're really good. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're brilliant. You know, so I, I don't feel like uh, there's a wrong answer to that question. I just feel like be honest with yourself about what you're in service of. Mm-hmm. Like, we're all in service of something. And so what is it that you're in service of? And what do, what do you want from acting, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you want from it? And that's what... Anything is legitimate, you know, in, uh, there. But don't, don't kid yourself. Yeah, that is something that is not. That's all. Okay, one last thing before you go. Do you have a motto or a mantra? Do you work by? <laughs> um, I I guess I, I I guess I used to, and and it's sort of probably become. 
something that I never really need to voice or think about. But I remember uh, when I was in youth theatre, like like 14 years old, and, and the, the woman who ran the youth theatre, she, she, you know, she knew what she was... She'd been around, and <laughs> oh, she, she knew oh, what... Oh, oh, she knew what she was doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, quite a complicated person, and... Uh, but... Something that... In, in order to get these kids who are, like, got lots of hang-ups and inhibitions... Uh, to work together, and these... The main thing that... The main thing that uh, stymies creativity mm-hmm. is your inhibitions yeah. your fear of fear of people thinking that you're wrong or uh, out of touch or not understanding or you're stupid or you're you're arrogant or you're whatever you know mm-hmm. all these things your inhibitions and and so she taught us at an early, at an early age and this is stuff that you get taught in drama school, I'm sure. I mean, in drama schools, I didn't, I didn't go to drama school, but uh, at an early age, she taught us, like, for what we're doing, like, you have to leave that stuff at the door and in here, for the purposes of these three hours, like, just do it. Yeah. Like, after that, you don't have to do anything. Like, but for what we're trying to do, just do it. Don't let your inhibitions like stop you mm-hmm. from giving yourself or uh, feeling like, oh, people will laugh at me or I'll be exposed or like for the purposes of this, and that's about trusting each other, trust, and what's the worst that can happen, and da 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 da, and like fostering an environment mm-hmm. among people that is. Uh, uh, good working environment so that you don't feel like in fear of uh, um, you know I'll make a fool of myself and I'll never I'll have to hang my head mm-hmm. you know so like her that, that sort of motto kind of stuck with me and stood me in good stead in a lot of ways and it also then became the Nike Nike logo <laughs> just do it well before you then. know but it was clearly well before but, then but for the purposes of yeah yeah before then <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed to say but yeah but for the purposes of uh, acting actors working together I think it's good it's the trust it's, it's, the, it's the trust exercise isn't it you know from the workshop falling backwards and being caught by your your co- your collaborators yeah it's the same it's the same principle yeah it's the same principle. You know, and from you have heart, to trust. From, you have yeah. to trust. You have to, to to just do it and not not for the for the duration of this session. Don't be afraid of the consequences. Because yeah. if you're afraid of the consequences, you'll never uh, you'll never achieve any kind of forward momentum with what you're trying to do, yeah. or what the scene needs, or what the or what this group needs. You know, of actors. You know. It's a wonderful way Be to afraid of the consequences. It's a wonderful way to end it. Um, if you're listening, guys, and you'd want to, and you're interested in taking part, and you want to be in service of your collaborators and colleagues who are taking part, and also um, 
uh, Ewan himself, head on over to our website. Uh, Mr. Bremner, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. You're Thank set. You. You're set. To you. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks so much. I could literally ask you 25 more questions, but uh, we'll, we'll save that for another time. Um, guys, thanks so much for listening in. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI. And you can buy us a little coffee or become a member and sign up for our new mentorship scheme. So if you go to wearefni.com forward slash mentors, we're launching our second phase of that in the new year where you can have one-on-one Zoom sessions with people working in film and TV that might um, give you the impetus to uh, to continue what you're doing in some cases or to maybe try something new and retrain. Maybe you never know. But for now... Um, Uh, Ewan, thank you so much and have a a great day. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you. And you. Have a good day. FNI Rap Chat is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and recorded at the podcast studio in Dublin City Centre. Shoutouts to our sponsors, Wildcard Distribution and Film Equipment Store. This episode was produced and edited by Larry McGann. See you next time on Rap Chat. And before we go, here's another show we recommended that is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Tell me, are you still looking for something worth dying for? Oh, kid. I left all that behind me. These days, I'm much happier as the humble owner of this down-to-earth and incredibly exclusive nightclub. Mick turns his head away and stares pensively. Dancing hot sex man, adventure romance. He will kick several Nazis and get in your pants. Listen to the Bootsy Boys Blackbird on the Headstuff Podcast Network.